say tonight when your trial comes up that you'll secure a conviction without the shadow of a doubt? I cannot make a statement which would reflect on Mr. Shaw. Since the day I we charged him and arrested him, I have not made a statement which inferred that he's guilty, and I cannot infer that now. But I am trying to tell you that there is no question as a result of our investigation that an element of the Central Intelligence Agency of our country killed John Kennedy and that the present administration is concealing the facts. There is no question about it at all. That is your opinion. No, it is not. I know it. And if you will just wait, you will see that history will support this as fact. Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 151, and I think you can tell by the music that we've made it through passport control. And that means that we're no longer in Cuba, but rather we're back in New Orleans, ready to tackle the story of Jim Garrison and his investigation and the resulting criminal prosecution of Clay Shaw in the only case ever to be brought to trial related to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Jim Garrison is a giant figure, both literally and figuratively, in the lore and the tale of the JFK assassination. He stood almost six feet seven inches tall, and he was an incredibly imposing man physically, with a booming voice and a style of speaking that was filled with conviction, a voice that rolled like thunder off his tongue. He was undoubtedly controversial, and both his loving and unloving detractors would refer to him as the Jolly Green Giant. For those of us that lived in that era, you remember the canned vegetable commercial that gave life to that very character. In those days, so much was connected to a jingle. No human being is perfect. Each and every one of us has flaws, has things that ensure that all of our yesterdays have lighted sorrows, as Shakespeare would say. Garrison had his, and in the story that we tell in this upcoming series of episodes, you'll hear some of them for Monsieur Garrison. Nevertheless, his decision to pursue the investigation of President Kennedy's death was real, and it was ostensibly quite virtuous. His venture was both singular and unique in nature in that no other local district attorney in the country besides perhaps Henry Wade in Dallas and Richard Gerstein in Dade County, Florida, would have been in a jurisdiction where the crime of murder or the crime of conspiracy associated with the president's death had been committed. Jurisdiction must be present first before any district attorney in this country can do anything. And I said both singular and unique. By singular, I meant jurisdiction. By unique, I mean that Garrison was the only one perhaps crazy enough and courageous enough out of those handful of men to pursue an investigation and a trial of this nature. Henry Wade was no Garrison. Wade was a man that wouldn't have ventured into the darkness of the assassination at any cost. And then there was Richard Gerstein, the tough prosecutor from Miami. He would be supportive of Garrison, 
but he himself was shadow boxing with the Cubans who lay underneath the covers in this rather unsavory web of deception that had come about as a result of the history that started in Miami beginning with the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. It was the epicenter for the hatred that generated in the Cuban community for Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. The assassination itself was a live wire, especially by 1967. The decision of a district attorney to take it on would be for any of them, at the very least, life-changing. And of course, inevitably, it became, at moments, life-threatening. Later in life, perhaps, as age and exhaustion had caught up with him and the antecedents of cancer were perhaps germinating, Garrison was asked whether he would do it all over again. And he said, with a frank and direct response, no, that the personal price that he had paid was too high. I am hopeful that was the response of a man still living that is talking about his lighted sorrows. Because in the case of the Kennedy assassination, he had them. The trial of Clay Shaw itself was a stunning failure, a terribly orchestrated series of witnesses that, when pieced together, failed to prove even the smallest of facts necessary to convict Clay Shaw beyond a reasonable doubt. And the result of this decision to go ahead with the prosecution, which took the jury about an hour to deliberate before they found Shaw not guilty, was a stunning success for the federal government as it sought to repel the idea that a contract operative of the CIA, Clay Shaw, along with other co-conspirators, were responsible for the murder of JFK. The rebuke would severely damage the credible idea that was now emerging, that some, perhaps rogue element of the United States government, was involved in the assassination, and that the event was genuinely a coup d'etat. It would take almost another decade now after the trial and more existential events such as Watergate, Nixon's resignation, the wind down of Vietnam, and the Pentagon Papers, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. It would take all of that to restoke the fires of conspiracy, restoke them in a credible enough way that the United States government itself would then call for a new investigation of the Kennedy assassination. And yet, as the jury left the courthouse in the New Orleans parish after such a short deliberation, they would eventually reveal that it was easy to find Clay Shaw not guilty. And that Garrison and his team had flatly failed on that account. But there was a hidden gem in the fodder of failure. Many of the jurors were convinced that the president was the victim of a conspiracy, and Garrison and his team's skillful presentation of those facts were eye-opening to them, and believable. Garrison had proved this part of the story beyond a reasonable doubt. It was only a handful of jurors, or should I say United States citizens, that were given the awesome task of determining the fate of Clay Shaw and they made the right decision based on the evidence that was presented in a court of law. But they were also given a powerful and unique platform to view a body of evidence and listen to cross-examination never before seen as it relates to the Kennedy assassination. It would be the one and only appearance in a courtroom that the Zapruder film would make. And they came away, many of them, with the conclusion that our president was the victim of a conspiracy.
With all the unintended damage that the Clay Shaw trial brought to the cause of finding the truth, it also shed more light on the incredible and almost unbelievable possibilities that might be out there related to the assassination. That the CIA or some element of the CIA could be involved. (laughs) My God, that was as an absurd a theory as you could ponder and proliferate in the United States. And of course, there was the heretic thought that the Warren Commission idea of a lone gunman open and shut case was a farce. That the government, from almost the moment of the assassination, had ignored the evidence that pointed to multiple gunmen. Well, Garrison made sure that they got to hear the incredible testimony of Richard Randolph Carr, who was there that day in the plaza. Testimony that stood up to intense cross-examination and was perhaps the most credible witness of all to testify in any official venue under oath, the most incredible witness of all to bring light to the fact that there was highly credible evidence of others involved that day in Dealey Plaza. And with precision in the courtroom, he chronicled others as they got away that day in the plaza. Richard Randolph Carr was a man that was never called before the Warren Commission, but was now giving testimony in the trial. And there would be attempts on Carr's life after all of this as well. (laughs) Are you surprised? Oh, and I shouldn't forget the testimony of Dr. Fink at the Clay Shaw trial. As you recall from our autopsy episodes, Dr. Fink was one of the three pathologists present at the president's autopsy, and really the only one truly qualified to be involved in such a forensic endeavor. Once upon the stand, he would be caught in a snarl that would give credence to the fact that the autopsy included deception. Deception that would sit for 20 to 30 years more before much of the true forensic issues related to it would be better uncovered slowly but progressively by other private researchers along the way and then finally by courageous folks like Doug Horn at the Assassination Records Review Board. Work done after pioneer researchers like David Lifton raised legitimate questions that were never fully answered. But in the bigger picture, the questions pointed only to one thing. If there was a conspiratorial element related to the autopsy, it had to be government-induced. Because only the government was involved in the autopsy. The government and the family of JFK. And of course, the largest premise that came from the trial was that Garrison believed most assuredly that Oswald had not fired a rifle that day and that he was truly set up to take the fall, that he was truly the patsy that he had himself declared to be as he was shuffled from room to room in front of reporters after his capture that day in Dallas. Whether that is true or not, still remains to be seen. One has to ask why Garrison went forth with the trial with such thin evidence in hand, and we'll explore that in detail. But the overarching fact is that the two main players in the conspiracy, from Garrison's viewpoint, were Guy Bannister and David Ferry, both of which were clearly linked to Oswald. But by the time of the trial, they were now dead both dying in somewhat questionable circumstances, or at least time frames. Bannister, not long after the assassination in early 1964, and then Ferry, 
right in the midst of being drawn into the investigation, but before all the indictments were handed down by Garrison. It was a moral blow to the case, and perhaps was enough right then to shut the whole thing down. But Garrison was still optimistic, and to some extent, he had been backed into a corner. But he sensed that the window was closing, and that before long, there might not be anyone they could bring to trial. They might all be dead. Just like Oswald, just like Ferry, just like Bannister, just like other key witnesses that were needed to prosecute the case, like Lee Bauer. Really, just like a whole line of witnesses that were now gone. And Garrison knew that no trial at all, in and of itself, would be a tragedy. As the trial itself was about revealing the truth, revealing all the facts to the public, and have them stand up in a court of law as being credible enough beyond a reasonable doubt. It was as much about that as it was about convicting any single person. We are going to explore a lot in this next series of episodes, so much of what I've just touched upon and even more. But let me add one more topic to the list because it's quite relevant and it deserves more time and attention in this series of episodes. Time and attention that we will most assuredly devote. Many ask the basic question about the investigation. JFK's brother, Bobby Kennedy, was the Attorney General of the United States. There was no one more zealous about putting criminals behind bars than Bobby Kennedy. So why then? Why would such a powerful man fall back into the shadows at the moment of his brother's death and never publicly lead the charge to find the real truth out about who really killed his brother? Publicly, he took a position that supported the general conclusions contained in the Warren Commission, but we know privately he had a much different view of things. Ultimately, he would conclude that the only credible answer to the real truth behind this question would have to come after he became president, because that was the only way, in his mind, that he would be powerful enough to lead a process that would uncover the truth about what really happened and to control the political impact to his own career should the truth be damaging politically to Bobby. Bobby was clearly concerned that the Cuban operation and the tough stance on organized crime and racketeering had backfired and that his own actions may have in some way contributed to his brother's death. It was a terrible burden and a premise that remains credible to this day. Bobby would eventually entrust only one person in this quest to begin the investigation. It was a close confidant of the Kennedy family, a man that he had locked arms with in the struggle against Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, and his name was Walter Sheridan. But the real frontal thrust of an investigation would have to wait, and it would go into high gear only after Bobby himself had attained the highest office in the land. And at that moment, in the early going, that was not likely to be a moment before 1972. After all, everyone expected two full terms out of Lyndon Johnson. But with the surprise of Johnson's decision to not run in 1968, that changed the calculus. It now looked like it might just be 1968. But the world was moving fast, and it wasn't waiting for Bobby Kennedy to get to his presidential campaign. And so it went in New Orleans. 
So as Garrison got started on his own odyssey, Walter Sheridan was dispatched to New Orleans. And you'll hear the whole story of what transpired. Sheridan was dispatched to figure out whether or not Garrison really had anything or not. Walter Sheridan would quickly conclude that Jim Garrison was not credible for reasons that we will explain in the episodes to come. And he would then, in a simple thumbs-up or thumbs-down way, tell Bobby Kennedy that Garrison was foe and not friend. A foe to Bobby Kennedy's hopes of winning the 1968 nomination for the presidency. Bobby needed to win the presidency, and then he would pursue the investigation. But anything that opened up the Cuban circumstance or other potentially fatal political topics in advance of that, as part of Garrison's investigation, was highly undesirable. Bobby could not control the outcome here, or the narrative, no matter how much he might have wanted anyone, including Garrison, to find the truth. This is, perhaps, one of the more tragic decisions of the story surrounding Jim Garrison. At a critical moment when Bobby might have helped and not hindered Garrison's investigation, he chose otherwise, based primarily on Sheridan's advice. There is no doubt that Garrison uncovered much of the truth about what was happening in Dallas. He may have even been close to solving the case. Only a portion of what they knew in the New Orleans investigation would make it to trial. There was much more to the Garrison investigation than anything that saw the light of day at that trial. And that was how Garrison knew so much. A curious and simple question we all ask ourselves, how did he blow it? But again, we'll leave that to other episodes. Walter Sheridan would go to work for NBC and mastermind an investigative episode that would pick apart Garrison's case, an NBC show that many may have thought was manipulated by the CIA against Garrison. But ironically, it had nothing to do with the CIA's position on things. It had everything to do with Bobby Kennedy and Walter Sheridan and their decision to label Garrison as a foe. The CIA was an ancillary beneficiary, so to speak, in this maneuver to destroy Garrison's credibility on national television in this incredible game of mirrors that was going on. The national media frenzy would eventually require NBC to provide equal time to Garrison to make his case and tell his story. And he did. And you'll get to hear that rebuttal in an upcoming episode. Don't get me wrong. There were lots of reasons for Bobby Kennedy to demur when it came to Garrison. And there was one highly credible determination that Walter Sheridan made that overwhelmingly convinced Bobby Kennedy that Garrison's true motives may have been compromised. This is a credible question given what they found. And again, you'll hear that in an upcoming episode. And finally, as you know, I like a little humor to be injected in these story tales, and the one character I can't wait to play as we present the tawdry tidings of the 1960s French Quarter to you is the jive-talking Dean Andrews, the lawyer who represented Oswald on a minor matter and who was called right after the assassination and asked to represent Oswald in the assassination case, called by one Clay Bertrand, the alias of Clay Shaw. (laughs) Well, my brother Dennis and I are fighting over which one of us gets to do Dean. 
and show off our fake Cajun accent. So sit back and enjoy and find your favorite recipe for crawfish etouffee and jump right in. And oh yeah, the only sandwich we're going to eat in the French Quarter is a po' boy. So join us in the next episode, episode 152, as we get on our way and dive deep into the world of Jim Garrison now that we're back in New Orleans. And before we do that, let's listen to one last clip today, one from Larry King. interviewing Jim Garrison. He's a district attorney from New Orleans, and he is investigating the Kennedy murders on his own. Later led to the Moody JFK. Got to know Jim pretty good, liked him. And he was convinced that there was a plot, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy, was set up. He may have been part of it, but there was a lot involved. Could have gone back to Cuba. He traced a lot of things, and he thought he was on to something big. Eventually a trial that he lost. So I was friends with Lou Wolfson, who recently passed away. He was a big financier in Miami, known as the great raider of the 50s, and interesting guy. And Lou and I were pretty close. And uh, so Lou, I had dinner with him subsequent to that, and he said, what would you think of Jim Garrison? He said, that's really interesting. Because Lou was into conspiracies a lot. I said, well, I don't know Jim Garrison, but I thought he was a hell of an interview, a hell of a story. He said, well, let's ask Dick Gerstein. And Dick was the district attorney in Miami. What does he think? So Dick says, well, I don't know the particulars of the Kennedy story, but I, I have great respect for Jim Garrison. And by the way, later became a judge. He said, uh, I, you know, I'm sure Jim thinks he, he is in on something, right? He's, in other words, he's not a charlatan. He's not looking for headlines. If Jim says that he feels he's got the story. I don't know the story. So Lou Wolfson said, let's, can we set up a dinner? So we had dinner. Me, Dick Gerstein, Lou Wolfson, and Jim Garrison. Now remember, I'm still a heady kid in the, all of this. I'm only in the business just 15 years, maybe 10. You know, I'm still, whoa. Lou Wolfson was like a hero to me. So we're talking, we're talking, and Lou looks at Jim Garrison and says, what do you need? Jim says, well, um, the state of Louisiana is going to stop financing this financing this thing I'm on because they you're running out of money. What do you need? He said, well, uh, Need $25,000. So Lou Wolfson, I tell you what, I'll give you $5,000 a month for five months to aid in your investigation. And how do we get the first 5000 to you? We're going to do this in cash. So Dick Gerstein says, uh, so Garrison says, uh, okay, Lou says, all right, Larry, you come to my house, I'll give you 5000 And he was a control freak. And are you going back tomorrow? Yeah. So, Larry, you drive Garrison to the airport and give him the 5000 I said, okay. Now, in the subsequent months, we'll set it up. Gerstein will deliver it, or I, I wasn't going to Orleans, so Dick will get it. Somehow we'll get it to him. So I drove him to the airport and gave him the 5000 don't. By the way, when he got out of the car, i never forget this, gets out of the car, looks in on the driver's side, on the passenger's side, and says to me, they're going to kill Robert Kennedy. It's the last words Jim Garrison ever said to me. 
they're going to kill Robert Kennedy. And he left. Now the next second month came about, and Gerstein got the 5,000 gave it to him. Now the third month is coming around, and Lou Wolfson gives me the 5,000 that I'm going to give to Gerstein to give to Garrison. I owed income taxes. I owed about $5,000. So, oh, Lou Wolfson now goes to jail on a, a stock fraud. So we've got the third 5000 So I said to Dick Gerstein, do you think that I could use the five to pay the taxes? And then I'll get the five somewhere, and we'll eventually give it to Garrison. Well, I never got the five. I used it to pay taxes. Gerstein said it would be fine. He explained it to Garrison. Lou goes to jail. Lou comes out of jail. During the interim time before he went to jail, he had asked me to see if I could get Richard Nixon to look into his case possible pardon or something or something. Or he always felt he was innocent, and I felt he was innocent, by the way. This was subsequent to the garrison thing, prior to the garrison thing. So Nixon gets elected. I knew Nixon. I'd interviewed him. I call up Nixon and said, can I talk to you about something? And the proposal was Wolfson was going to form an organization called Democrats for Nixon, and he would fund it in return for Nixon should look into his case, the possibility of a pardon. All he wanted to do was look into it. So I fly to New York. Nixon is elected but has not taken office yet. It's a cold night in December. He's at the Pierre Hotel. I call him up. He says, okay, listen, I'll be down about, this is Nixon, president-elect. I'll be down the elevator in about a half hour. Meet me and we'll walk over. I'm going to Washington to name some cabinet members. You'll walk me over to the helipad. I'm going to a helipad. So he comes down off the elevator. Secret Service is there. There's reporters. Hey, Larry, how are you? Now we're walking down the street. And he says to me, what brings you to New York? What do you want to see me about? And I couldn't ask him. Something told me this could be big trouble. I just couldn't ask him. So I just said, well, I wanted to make sure. I wanted to congratulate you. I'm, you know, I'm a Democrat, but and uh, I hope you come on my show sometimes. He said, well, you, you could have asked me that on the phone. I said, yeah, it was nice to see you. And I was like coming to New York. So we walked a few blocks. He went his way. I went my way. And I'll forget some reporters following me. Who are you? What was he talking to you about? But I never brought him. Lou goes to jail, and now he's pissed that I never asked him. And he gets out of jail. What happened to my 5,000? I used it to pay. So he goes down to Dick Gerstein and charges me with fraudulently taking the 5000 So Gerstein is strapped, but he's my friend. So they appoint a special prosecutor who's going to prosecute me on taking the 5000 which I never took. Was all Anyway, it all blows up. The whole Garrison story breaks. His supporting the Wolfson raising money. And I was uh, indicted. So I lost my jobs. Three months later, the judge throws the whole thing out, but I lost my jobs. And I paid a price for ego. I let my ego get the best of me. Hey, Garrison, Gerstein, Wolfson, Kennedy. I was in a high. I was always in money troubles, which led me into this. It was my fault. I couldn't say it wasn't my fault. Gerstein had to do it, or he would have been. They would have. He was larger than me. He was district attorney. What was he doing running $5,000 for 
from one guy in Miami to the district attorney. It was really convoluted. And, uh, but it was, you know, as I look back, it's an experience in my life. Did it affect me later? I don't, the question is, did it affect me? I don't know if it did. Uh, I later saw Dick Gerstein a lot. He went into private life. He subsequently, everybody died that's associated with this. Everybody died. But I did see some stuff Garrison had that never got into the press or into the trial that has always left me open on this. An interview with a pilot. He played the interview for us at that dinner. A pilot who was hired by this guy in, in New Orleans to fly to Dallas. He's going to pick up a passenger at the airport. Didn't give him the name, but described him to fit the description of Lee Harvey Oswald. You wait at the Dallas airport. This kid's going to come take him to Mexico. And he paid him $5,000, this pilot, and you'll get another five when you come back. And we'll pay for the plane and everything. He said, well, I'm at the airport. The guy never came. I'm listening to this on tape. And Garrison said to Gerstein, what would you do with this? The pilot eventually died of a heart attack, a heart attack that people questioned. But I heard that tape. I'm a totally believable guy. What did he have to lose? You know, the guy never came. I interviewed the cop who arrested Lee Harvey Oswald. My life's been a swirl. He arrested him in the movie theater after he shot Tippett. Oswald said only one thing on the drive from the movie theater to the jail. I'm a patsy. He didn't say he's innocent. He didn't say just I'm a patsy. What does patsy mean? Patsy lends you to think that he was involved in this and someone was supposed to be downstairs at the book depository that wasn't there. And he panicked, ran around, shot Tippett, ran into a movie theater. Why would he use Patsy? Then he had to be killed, didn't he? See, this is for the conspiracy theorists. Because if Oswald, he's going to have a ton of information. So you got to get somebody to kill him who's totally like an innocent. You get Jack Ruby, who loves the Kennedys and who's crazy. You get Jack Ruby to do it. You can't do it, you, the conspirator. You're going to get caught, but you got to get rid of Oswald. And I'm in the swirl of all this. I mean, I've heard all this stuff. Who is Hetty? I paid a price for Hetty. Thank you for listening to episode 151 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.